I get the privilege to be able to serve here as the lead pastor. And we're going to be continuing our study through 1 Peter that we are calling Christians Are Crazy. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead, turn me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want to start off by asking you a question this morning. If you knew the future, how would that change your life? Let's just say you could go 20 years into the future. You could see the world. You could see your life, culture, your family. And then you were to come back and you were going to get to live forward. How would that change your life? Let's just think if you were to go into the future and you discovered that you were going to have heart disease. And then you'd come back. Would that change your diet, exercise? Would it change your rest, the quality of time you spend with your children? How would your life change? If you were to go to the future and you were to see that Bitcoin would be the world currency, okay? Would you come back and start investing in Bitcoin today? How would the future change your life? If you were to go in the future and you were to see that the Dallas Cowboys do not suck, (laughs) would you stop being embarrassed being a fan? Would you finally feel confident when you wear that jersey? If you were to go into the future and you were to see that that girl in your small group that you got a crush on, and you were to see that she would say yes and you would have a family, three kids and a white picket fence in front of a dream house that you always wanted. And then you come back, would it give you the confidence to ask her out on a date? If you knew the future, how would that change your life? The answer is probably not very much because there's a difference between knowing something and doing something about it. It's one thing to know what's coming. It's a different thing to prepare for what is coming. And that's what Peter is going to do is today in first Peter chapter four, he is going to prepare us for what comes next. And so if you're taking notes, go ahead and pull out your sheet. Here's the sermon title today. You ready? It's really exciting. How to prepare for persecution. What Peter is going to tell us in chapter one is he says that there are various trials that are coming your way. And the church was experiencing these trials. They were known as exiles. They were known as sojourners, strangers in this land. At this point, we have seen that the early church have been persecuted, that they have been kicked out of their homes. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their families. They can no longer live in the society in which they are familiar with. Instead, because of the persecution, the church is no longer gathered. They are scattered across the ancient world. The persecution started in Acts chapter 7 when they murdered one of the deacons named Stephen. And then it happened again in, later in Acts when James uh, also was martyred as well. Rome and the religious leaders rose up. They began to persecute. They began to arrest. They threw the church into prison. They burned down their homes and they fed them to lions. And so the church could no longer gather. Therefore they were scattered. And Peter writes this letter to the church all across the region. And he says, you have experienced various trials, but then today in chapter four, he's going to say, but now get ready because the fiery trials are on their way. He says, guys, you think it's bad now, but just wait. You think you've gone through hell now, Just wait. You think life's been hard now, but you need to prepare because I would love to tell you it's going to get better. But instead, Peter today tells us that, in fact, it's going to get worse. Persecution is on its way. And so he's preparing the church on how to be prepared when persecution comes. And here's what I love so much about the Bible is that this was written 2000 years ago but it might as well have been written two years ago because the world that we live in has changed. That in America, waving the Jesus flag no longer gets you bonus points. Instead, it'll get you criticized. It'll get you canceled. It'll get you ostracized, standing up for your religious convictions, standing firm on what the Bible teaches is going to get you in trouble. If you wanna live right by God, you will be in trouble by man. Persecution is happening, not just here, but rather it's happening all around the world in other places like China and in Africa and North Korea and South America. Our brothers and sisters are experiencing the same wave of persecution that the early church experienced. And that wave is also on its way here in America. But here's what I do know is that persecution is the soil in which revival is planted. That persecution 
causes us to go further into our faith, to rely greater on God's presence, to depend on God's power through his Holy Spirit in ways that we never had before. Persecution, what it will do is it will reprioritize our lives. It will give meaning to our lives and it will drive us deeper into trusting and depending and relying on Jesus Christ to be able to meet our needs. Because when Jesus is all you have, you will realize that Jesus is all that you will need. I love this word because this word is God's word. This word is timeless. Therefore, it is always timely. We don't have to make the Bible relevant. I feel bad for pastors who have to try to make the Bible relevant because the Bible is always relevant. This is not just a word about what happened. This is a word that always happens. It is to prepare us for what God is going to do next. And here's the good news is that persecution is the soil in which revival is planted. Right now in China, in the underground church, believers are coming to faith in multiplication. In 30 years, some experts say that China will actually be the largest Christian nation on the planet. Right now in the Middle East, next week, we're gonna have a missionary from Saudi Arabia. She's gonna be here talking about what God is doing in the underground church, and she's gonna tell stories. And here's what we do know, is that it is illegal to be able to own a Bible or to preach the gospel, but yet in the Middle East, every single day, believers are coming to faith because they're having dreams about a man named Isa al-Masah, or Jesus Christ, who is visiting them in their sleep, and they're waking up and moms in the Middle East are now in Assembly of God seminaries learning and trained up to go and become church planters. It is in the midst of that persecution that revival is planted. One of my favorite quotes comes from uh, World War II. Joseph Stalin, he wanted to destroy all of the Christian churches in Russia. He, he formed something known as the League of Militant Atheists. Their job was to kill Christians. A year later, they come back. Stalin's upset because the church is still growing. They ask his leader, he said, why have you not killed the church yet? Here's what he said. Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. Persecution will drive you into the presence of God. Persecution will drive you on your knees as you pray and you fast and you intercede for God. It will strip away the idols of your heart and it will cause you to worship with purity and pure motives and pure intentions. Persecution, my friends, is the, God, is the, is the soil that revival is planted in. This book was written 2,000 years ago. Who was the leader? His name was Caesar what was the culture? It was Rome, the greatest empire the world has ever seen. What were they doing? They were persecuting Christians. Well, I'm here to tell you, last week I was in Rome and it's nothing more than a tourist attraction and the church of Jesus Christ is still, is still multiplying, still reaching people, still changing lives. We are still worshiping him. We are still serving him and the gospel is still going forward. Caesar is dead, long live King Jesus. A revival broke out in the midst of that persecution. I believe what God is doing again today is he is sending a revival. He is purifying hearts. He is looking for a bride that will be pure whenever he returns. I believe God is doing something new in our midst and we have to be ready and we have to be prepared for what comes next. So you're thinking right now, you're like, pastor, are you telling me right now in Beaumont, Texas, we're being persecuted? I would say no. But I would also be a fool if I didn't prepare you for what comes next. Because persecution is not just a possibility, it is actually a reality. Listen, freedom is always one generation away from extinction. And it takes Christians to stand up for what they believe and to stand firm on the Bible and to stand strong in their convictions. Because if it happened then, it can happen again. And if it's happening other places, it can also happen here. And so this is not just a preparing word. This is also a prophetic word for what might come next. Here's how persecution works. It's actually five stages. The first stage is that there will be... There we go. The first stage is there will be stereotyping. Now, 
True or false? Are they stereotyping Christians today? All Christians are bigots and homophobes and they're transphobic. They're uneducated. You know, their beliefs are antiquated. Like they are so out of touch with reality. They're on the wrong side of history. They're racist. They're white supremacists and Christian nationalists and colonizers. Whole bunch of $3 words that nobody knows what the meaning is. The second thing is they'll begin to vilify you, make you the enemy. Are they vilifying Christians? Yeah, they're blaming us for all sorts of things. Oh, we're the reason that the pandemic continued because we're grandma killers and super spreaders. Apparently, don't you remember during 2020, it was illegal for you to go to church, but you could go to a strip club because it's a lot more sanitary to stick a 20 in a stripper's G-string than it is to take communion on a Sunday. They're vilifying believers. They're saying, oh, well, you're the reason for the rise of suicide amongst the transgender community. And you're the cause for all of the election problems that are happening. And Christians, they're spreading misinformation left and right. They're domestic terrorists. Number three, they begin to marginalize you. I mean, I know people who lost their jobs during COVID because uh, their Christian conscience wouldn't allow them to take the vaccine. So they lost their jobs. People have lost family members. People have lost friends over not, you know, waving a certain flag or marching in a parade or not, you know, bowing to critical race theory. And so all of a sudden now they're called racists and they've lost their friends and family. People have turned their backs on them. They've been marginalized by a society. No longer is it cool to be a Christian. Now Christians are considered crazy. Then we have number four. It goes into criminalizing where eventually... Standing up against abortion will be called domestic terrorism. Evangelism will be made illegal and churches will be stripped eventually of their 501c3 nonprofit status. And it will be a criminal act to be able to preach the gospel because it will be called hate speech, which leads to step number five, outright persecution. Now, are we currently being persecuted right now? No, but the foundation has been laid. Steps one through three are already in process and steps four and five, they're on their way. We're already seeing these play out in Europe where preachers are being arrested and thrown in jail for preaching the biblical stance on marriage between one man and one woman. We already have parents who are actually being thrown in jail for not allowing their children to transition in Canada. We saw the nonsense and craziness that Australia did during COVID and all the lockdowns that they have. And even right now in Virginia, they are trying to pass laws that will make it to where a child can transition without the consent of their parents. It's on its way. And if you resist it, they will call CPS because you're you're child abuse against your kid. What will the world look like in 20 years? Nobody imagined we would be where we are at five years ago. I mean, five years. Anybody think men could get pregnant? I mean, five years ago, did you believe that pedophiles would be called minor attracted people? Five years ago, did you think that any of this stuff would be what it is? And did you believe that we as a society would be where we are at today? If that's what happened in five years, imagine what's going to happen in 20 years. And so I'm not here to try to scare you, but I do want you to be prepared because I don't want Christians living in la-la land while they're just driving their car, listening to their favorite Elevation album, listening to their favorite celebrity preacher and just thinking everything's gonna be okay while your neighbors die and go to hell. And while the culture continues to get hotter, while those fiery trials begin to build hotter, and when the world continues to get darker and the days continue to get longer, and you're like, it's all gonna get better. No, my friend, Peter says, it's gonna get worse. And so you need to be ready and prepared for when that day comes. Are you ready to follow Jesus no matter the cost? Are are you ready to follow Jesus when I get arrested for not performing a gay wedding? Are you still gonna support your pastor? Will you still, when we don't move into that new building, because instead we lose our nonprofit status, we can't afford the taxes on it. And so now we're meeting downtown by the river. You thought these chairs were uncomfortable. Wait till you have to sit on the floor. Are you still gonna be happy and excited to go to church in the morning? Are you still gonna be as faithful and fired up to follow Jesus when you don't have air conditioner, you're sitting out in the summer, it's 105 degrees. Are you still gonna be a faithful witness in your community before your family when all the conveniences of following Christ are moved away? See some people in moments of comfort and moments of emotion, they'll say, Jesus, I will die for you. My question is, are you living for him now? Because if it doesn't matter to you today, it will not matter for you on that day. Are you ready for when 
persecution comes our way. I'm not here to scare you, but I am here to prepare you. Prepare you for what if and when that day comes. Like our brothers and sisters in China or in the Middle East, even here in America, we need to have a preparation plan. So my question for you is, are you ready? Here's how we do it. Peter's gonna give us five ways to prepare for persecution. The first thing he says is this, is that we need to, number one, resist sin. Here's what he says. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That we're not living for our will, but we're living for God's will. That we're not living based on our preference, but we're living based on God's promises. We're not living based upon what we want, but what God says. We've said no to sin and we are saying yes to following Jesus. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. What do they do? What do Gentiles, non-believers do? Living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of, what's the word? Debauchery. It doesn't say their own opinion. It doesn't say their own preferences. It doesn't say, oh, that's your truth. This is my truth. No, the Bible says your truth is debauchery. It goes on and he says, they do not, when you do not, the flood of debauchery, they malign you, they make fun of you, they criticize you, they have mean tweets about you. But they will, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the way that the Spirit of God does. This is the theme verse for our Christians Are Crazy series. It's where we got the title from, and it comes right here in verse 4, where it says this, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in their same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They make fun of you. They're going to call you crazy for not doing the very things that they are doing. See, we used to live in a day where people were like, we want you to be tolerant. What does tolerant mean? It means you put up with people. It means that you live alongside of them, even though you disagree with them. But that's not what people want anymore. People don't want tolerance. They want celebration. They want to hear their words coming out of your mouth. And if your words don't line up with their words, then you're the one who's wrong. They don't want tolerance. They want to be celebrated for the debauchery that they do. So what is this debauchery? It goes on. Sensuality, that's sexuality without any boundaries, passion, drunkenness, orgies. What's an orgy? Don't Google it. <laughs> Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Welcome to the United States of Rome. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound interesting? Does that sound like anything we might be going through? And here's what Peter says. It was true for them and it was true for us. What are we supposed to do when we live in a culture like this? Are we supposed to join them? Are we supposed to march in their parades? Are we supposed to throw a party for them? Do we put their pronouns in our bio? Do we use their hashtag? What do we do? Do we celebrate it? Do we tolerate it? Do we participate in it? No, here's what he says. You resist it. You say no to it. You do not join them. You do not participate in them. And in fact, you actually run from it because you resist it. And when you do that, the world's gonna call you crazy. But here's what I've discovered is this. When sin is common, holiness is crazy. How does God tell us to live? He says, be holy as I am holy. When a world is living in sin, you choosing to live for holiness is gonna sound crazy to a lot of people. But here's what we know is that truth is truth, whether people believe it or not. Right is right, no matter if everybody else is doing wrong. Culture doesn't change God. God changes the culture. We do not have the right to edit God's word. We are the messengers of God's word. And just because everybody doing it doesn't mean that it's right. And just because it's accepted doesn't mean that it's acceptable. When sin is common, then holiness is going to be considered crazy. And people are going to criticize and malign you. But here's what God says. When they make fun of you, remember this. God has called you his beloved. God has called you his child. God has called you to be his. God has saved you by his grace. 
And so if they criticize you, just remember he selected you. If they reject you, just remember that God has chosen you. And if you wanna live out of the fear of the Lord, you must resist to live in the fear of man. People will call you crazy. They're gonna make fun of you. They're gonna cancel you. They're gonna criticize you. But remember that he is the one who has chosen you. You cannot worry about what the world says. You must worry about what God says. You say, you're crazy. Yeah, you know what? I am crazy. Here's how crazy I am. I'm crazy about Jesus. I'm crazy about what God's done in my life. I'm crazy about my testimony that I was dead and now that I'm alive. Oh yeah, I'm crazy. I'm so crazy. I believe that God, his word is true and it is trustworthy. I believe that is infallible from Genesis to Revelation. I believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that God sent his son Jesus to die for my sins and three days later he resurrected. I believe that Jesus is not a way, he is the way and no one could come to the Father, but by him. I believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he sends the Holy Spirit to to, to give me supernatural spiritual gifts to live a life of holiness and godliness. And I believe that Jesus will one day come back again to judge the living and the dead. Yes, I am crazy, crazy about Jesus. And when you live this way, God calls you holy. People might call you crazy, but God calls you holy. They might say, you're on the wrong side of history. And I would say, brother, you are on the wrong side of eternity. This is not left versus right, my friends. This is life versus death. This is not Republicans versus Democrats. This is right versus wrong. This is not, this, this is not progressives versus conservatives. This is empire versus kingdom. Whose side are you on? I would rather be called crazy than for God to not refer to me as holy. We are to resist sin. We don't celebrate it. We don't join in on it. We don't throw parades for it. We resist it. It says, if you want to survive persecution, you must be able to stand firm and resist against sin. Number two, he says, you need to practice self-control. Here's how he goes on next. He says, the end of all things is at hand. One day Jesus will return. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. Circle that, it's important. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What's grumbling? It's what some people were doing during that first point. I don't like this sermon. I don't like this preacher. He's always yelling and he's loud and he, he preaches. He's mean. He preaches controversial subjects and I just don't like it. Is this church always this way? Yes. <laughs> They're grumbling, oh, they didn't play my favorite songs. And, you know, I just wish that the sermon was a little bit shorter and these chairs were a bit more comfortable. I just agree with that, pastor says. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining. He says, Jesus is coming back, guys. Not enough time for you to spend your time complaining. I mean, just think about it. How do you want to be found when Jesus comes back? When Jesus comes back riding on that white horse with fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand with the angel armies and a multitude of hosts behind him and there you are in the corner complaining. (laughs) Is that how you want Jesus to find you? Just flipping through Fox News, grumbling about the world? I can't believe it, I can't believe it. Listen, if you have time to complain about it, you got time to pray about it. When Jesus comes back, don't let him find the church complaining, but rather let him find his church praying. You know how much self-control it takes to complain? None. My daughter is five. She complains about everything. She's like, I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't want to eat chicken nuggets. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to watch that show. I don't want to go to bed. She sounds like a church member. (laughs) You know how much self-control it takes for a person to complain about something? Zero. You know how much self-control it takes for you to pray about something? A whole lot. Why? Because you have to battle your flesh. You have to battle yourself. You have to battle your phone. You have to battle your time. You have to battle your energy. You have to battle so many things to make it a priority in your life in order to pray. So don't be one of those people who just sit around complaining about the world. Instead, be a person who prays for the world. Too many Christians out here complaining about lost people. 
Now, I know if Christians out there praying for lost people, I just determined in my heart that I, I, if, I'm not, if I'm not praying about it, I got no right to complain about it. If I'm not praying for the church, I got no right to complain about the church. If I'm not praying for the lost, I got no right to complain about the lost. If I'm not praying for my family, I ain't got no right to complain about my family. If you're gonna complain about something, just go ahead and devote an extra 30 minutes every day to pray about that thing. You gotta practice self-control. The third thing he says is that we need to become a steward. Here's how he continues. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. I love that Peter says we are to be stewards of God's various grace. You know what various means? It's a lot. And it's for a lot of different reasons. It's a variety pack. God's grace is not a one size fits all grace. No, for every unique situation or circumstance, problem or pain that you find yourself in, God has got a grace specifically for that need. If you are in a financial pain, God has a financial grace. If you're in a relational pain, God has a relational grace. It's a various grace. It's a mental health grace. There is a physical health grace. God has a grace for whatever you are going through. And what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to steward the grace that God gives. What is a steward? A steward is a person who invests. So we steward our finances so that way we can get a greater return on the investment. We steward our talents and our skills. You steward your job so that way in years you can get a greater return on that investment, right? In the same way you steward your finances and your career and your family, it's the same way God wants you to steward your pain. That your pain is too expensive for you to waste it. Instead, you must invest it. What do we do with the grace of God? Do we abuse God's grace? No, we use God's grace. What God does in you, God wants to do through you. Our, 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 our prayer is not that we would just be containers of God's grace, but that we would be conduits of God's grace to the world that is around us. Your pain is too expensive for you to waste it. Instead, you need to invest it. And ask this question, God, how can I use this moment to be able to bring a blessing into another person's life? Instead of asking God, why am I going through this? You ask God, who are you preparing me to be and who can I be a blessing to another life? Your pain is far too expensive. Do you know how much your pain has cost you, what you've gone through? what you're going through, what you will go through. You know how much it costs you? It costs you your time. It's cost you your energy. It's cost you your tears. It's cost you nights and sleep where you can't go to bed because your brain is running nonstop. It's cost you your anxiety. It's cost you your worry. It's cost you relationships. It's cost you your marriage. It's cost you your children. It has cost you so much. Why would you waste that? Instead, allow God to use it to be a blessing in your life and in others. We are to steward the, the pain that we find ourselves in. So that way we do not become selfish where all we do is think about ourselves, but rather we become selfless where we think about the glory of God and the good of others. I think about my friend who was in my small group who she had a cancer diagnosis and as she was going through all of her chemo and all of her tests on the year of her anniversary of her cancer diagnosis, it was rare and it was aggressive. She actually decided that she wanted to be baptized and so she got in that tank and she was baptized. And she told me, she said, I could have used cancer as an excuse to blame God and run away from him. But instead what God did is God began to take that pain and he began to turn it around and he began to use it as a way to draw me closer to him. I think about our own JC Selman, our next gen director, where at the beginning of this year, she gave birth to her beautiful daughter, Emmy. And for nine months, the doctors told her that the child would have a 0% life sustainability. Her baby would be born without a brain and would not be able to live. And they recommended that she would terminate it. But she instead chose life. And every single Sunday, she was down here in the altars with her husband. And every single first Wednesday, she was down here in the altars and she was praying for healing. And every single week, she was still working her regular hours on staff here at the church. She was still serving your kids and holding your babies, even though she knew that she wouldn't get to hold hers. And she gave birth to that baby girl and it only lived for a few days. But as a church, we got to see the strength of her life 
We got to see what God was doing in her and her marriage. We got to see the faith be on display. We got to see what boldness looked like. We got to see that and it strengthened our faith as well. So much so that just last baptism Sunday, her mom gave the life to Jesus and her mom got saved because of the miracle that God was doing in her life. Listen, the pain that you go through is far too expensive for you to waste it on yourself. Instead, invest it for the glory of God and the good of others. The fourth thing he says is that if you want to survive persecution, you need to learn how to serve. Here, pick it up in 10. As each of you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever in all the church said... Now, if you want to, you need to remember the context that all of this is in. What's the context here? Peter is preparing them for persecution. He said, you have experienced trials, but you haven't experienced anything yet. It's going to get hotter. It's going to get darker. It's going to get more troublesome. There are fiery trials that are on their way. And so what are we supposed to do in the meantime? He says that the end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? It's going to get better. When? When Jesus comes back. Yay! But what do we do in the meantime? It's going to get worse. So how do we prepare for when it gets worse? Here's what he says. You spend your time serving. See, a lot of Christians, they think that serving is an add-on to the Christian experience. I'll serve when I get time to it. I'll serve when I have the energy to do it. I'll, I'll give whenever I get a little bit more money. Listen, if it don't matter to you now, it won't matter to you then. I'll serve when I have the margin. If it don't matter to you now, it won't matter to you then. I'll join a small group later. If it don't matter to you now, it won't matter to you then. People think that serving is an add-on to the Christian experience. But listen, my friends, serving is not optional. Serving is essential. It's essential for you to be plugged into the body and to the life and to the health of the church. It's essential for you to be in a small group, for you to tithe and to serve by using your gifts and talents. Why? Because it is serving that separates the casual Christians from the committed Christians. See, a casual Christian comes to church and says, what's in it for me? A committed Christian comes to church and says, how can I bless others? A casual Christian will, will come to church and they will take. A committed Christian comes and they will give. Some people come to church to be spectators. Other people come to participate. Some people come to be entertained, but other people come to be equipped. Some people, they want to be wowed, and other people, they want to worship. Which one are you? Serving is what separates the, the, the casual Christians from the committed Christians. And when persecution comes your way, guess who's going to be the one who, who make it? It's going to be the ones who serve. Why? Because they have spent years developing their spiritual gifts, discovering those gifts. They have been strengthened to serve. They have been developed. They have been equipped. Therefore, they are ready to be deployed. It's going to be the ones who have put in the work. It's going to be the ones who have got on their knees and have prayed and interceded. It's going to be the ones who have put their trust in God and not in their bank account. It's going to be the ones who know that, that the, the church is not, is the hope of the world. It's going to be those people that are going to have the faith and the strength to be able to persevere when that day comes because they've already put in the work. Listen, a, a musician has to learn how to play the chords before they ever play a concert, right? I mean, a soldier has to learn how to go through boot camp before they ever go to battle. But as Christians, we have to learn how to serve in the church if we actually want to be the church when it matters the most. Right now, people are thinking that, 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 that the church is dying. You've heard this said. Oh, the church is dying. Christianity is dying. People are leaving the church in droves. No, I don't believe so. I don't believe that the church is dying. I believe we're just dropping some dead weight. That the body of Christ has been bloated for too long with people who are actually holding us back. And now that there is no more cultural benefit for those who claim to be a Christian, we're starting to see what their true colors actually are. That God is using this as a season to be able to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, to be able to separate the casual from the committed. See, in 2020, if you were a casual Christian, you didn't make it through the pandemic. You got too comfortable going to church in your pajamas. But it was the committed ones 
who actually grew more stronger and grew more faithful. Our church has actually doubled in size since the pandemic and a whole lot of new people I ain't never met before. See, the pandemic, what it did was this. It didn't cause us to lose people. It just caused us to reveal who was actually with us. And if you stop going to church because of the pandemic, God help you when persecution comes your way. Some people say, well, why are people leaving the church? John has an answer for it. He says this, they departed from us because they were not one of us. It's, it's serving, it's loving, it's blessing, it's giving, it's commitment that is required if you want to be able to survive what's coming next. Are you committed or are you a casual Christian? Number five, he tells us this. If you want to survive what's coming next, you have to embrace suffering. Here's how he closes out this app. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. Some people are surprised when life is hard. They're like, I gave my life to Jesus. What happened? Life, life happened. That's what happened. Like I thought when I gave my life to Jesus, everything's gonna get better. Whoever was your pastor, he lied to you. You need to get a new pastor. I thought I was just, everything was going to be great and fine. I was just going to be singing hymns and skipping and it was going to be wonderful. And now there's these trials. Okay, well, you obviously haven't read your Bible because Jesus tells us it was going to happen. He says, trials and tribulations will come your way, but take heart for I have overcome this world. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they killed me, there's a possibility that it might cost you your life as well. Because the servant is not any greater than his master. Do not be surprised when fiery trials come your way to test you as though something strange was happening to you. What we are experiencing now may be new to us, but it is not new to Christianity. Right? Maybe in the 90s, we had a good run when everybody was wearing their WWJD bracelets. And Carmen was on the radio. But that has not been the story of the Christian faith for 2,000 years. It's not the story of our brothers in China, our sisters in the Middle East, or those who are in prison in North Korea right now. Do not be surprised when the trial comes as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, rejoice. How many of you love that? Rejoice in your suffering. I don't like that sermon. Rejoice again and again I say rejoice. Oh, no. And so far as you share Christ's sufferings, then he doubles down the audacity that you will rejoice again. What? No. And be glad when his glory is revealed. We do not rejoice because of our sufferings. We rejoice in spite of them. We rejoice because we have a joy that this world cannot take from us. We rejoice because we have a joy that is not dependent on what others say, but what Christ has done. We rejoice because though man may burn our bodies, they will never be able to take our souls. We rejoice because our joy does not come from our circumstances. It comes from the sovereignty of the Lord who rules and reigns forevermore. That, my friends, is where our joy comes from. It does not come from earth. It comes from heaven. And therefore, no one could ever take our joy. Rejoice and be glad, for in this the glory is revealed. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Say, what if they make fun of me? So? You're blessed. But what if they call me a bad word? You're blessed. Jesus says you're blessed. God says you're blessed. But, but, but what if they unfollow me on Instagram? You are a 37-year-old man. Get over it. You're like, oh, somebody made fun of me. Listen, you got a job and a wife and some kids. Go home and spend time with them and stop spending time worrying about what other people have to say about you. You're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. I love, I love reading stories about missionaries and overseas. I think, I think every new believer 
The first thing they need to do is get baptized. And the second thing they need is a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. So you can see your family history. I just love, I love reading stories about missionaries in the persecuted church. You know, Ashley, her family is actually from North Korea. Her grandfather defected into South Korea. Her mom moved here to America, first generation Asian American. And we got to meet some missionaries that were on the Pyongyang River between North Korea and South Korea in the demilitarized zone and listening to stories about people who are disappeared and thrown into prison in North Korea and they escape and they ask them, what was it like? And they said, I've never experienced the presence of God so strong that I did when I was in that jail cell. Why? Because the spirit of God rests on you in persecution that it will never rest upon you in your comfort. And if you can't worship him in comfort, how are you going to worship him whenever your life depends on it? He goes on, he says, but let none of you suffer as a a murderer or an evildoer or a meddler. I love that he says that. Murderers, evildoers, or people who are just concerned about other people's business. (laughs) Sixth thing the Lord hates, seven things is abomination. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be what? Oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. I can't believe you did that. You really, you're, you're a Christian. You should be ashamed. Shame on you, Christians, forced birthers. Shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself for your bigoted beliefs and your outdated beliefs. Shame on you. Should, are you ashamed of yourself? No. No, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the truth of God. I am not ashamed for the gospel has the power to save. And I am not ashamed for I stand upon the name that is above all names. Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior. I am not ashamed. But let him glorify in God in his name. For the time of judgment is to begin at the household of God. What God is doing right now is he is judging the church. Who's in, who's out who's here for their glory, who's here for my glory. It is the separation of wheat and chaff, sheep and goats, committed and casual. The judgment of God has come upon the church and there are some who are in and there are some who are out. Their true colors are being shown. And it begins with us. And what will become of the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What's gonna to happen to those who, who leave the church and defect and deconstruct and take upon worldly heresies and sexual identities that are opposite of what the Bible actually teaches? When people start saying, I think God is loving and God is not gonna punish anybody because God is love. Listen, whenever the angels are standing around the throne of heaven, here's what they are not saying. Love, love, love. You know what they are saying? Holy, holy, holy. And God's holiness is what derives his love and his mercy. And if God was not holy, he would not be loving. And to believe in a God who is love and not holy is a false demonic God. And it is not the God of the Bible at all. Holy, holy, holy. Judgment is coming upon the house of the Lord. False teachings will become more prevalent and more evident. Those who are using their pulpits to lead people astray, to raise money for their own careers or businesses and become more common. And many people who don't know their Bible will be deceived because their teachings meet the the carnalness inside of your own heart. In the last days, people have itching ears. They'll want to hear the things that make them feel happy. And they'll get up and walk out of sermons like this. But judgment, my friends, is coming to the household of God. And it begins with us. If not for us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those of us who are suffer according to God, we would trust our souls to the faithful creator while doing good. Read verse 12. What does it say? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar that you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad that his glory is revealed. Hey, raise your hand if you want to be like Jesus. Raise your hand. You want to be like Jesus? Want to be like Jesus? Hands up all over the place. Easiest altar call ever. (laughs) Raise your hand if you want to suffer. Anybody? See, the truth is they're the same question. 
Because if you want to learn how to be like Jesus, you must also learn how to share in his sufferings. See, we love to hear the sermons about how we can live our best life now. We love to hear, you are the head and not the tail. You are the first and not the last. You are blessed and highly favored in Jesus' name. Hashtag Jeremiah 29, 11. But then we hear the sermon on like, hey, do you want to share in Christ's sufferings? And we're like, no, thank you. But you will never be like Christ unless you learn how to suffer in the way that he did. See, see the truth is Americans aren't really good at suffering. No, we, 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 want, we want to be inoculated. We want a vaccine for suffering, yeah. right? I mean, do I have to suffer? Can I just like take some medicine and sleep it off for three days and it'll go away? But no, there is no, there is no antidote for suffering. Suffering is inevitable. It's unavoidable. See, it doesn't say, if you suffer. How many of you would love the if you suffer sermon? It doesn't say that. It says, when you suffer. The question is not a matter of if you suffer. The question is when you suffer, how well will you suffer? Will you become two ways? One, you can say suffering as an excuse for your sinfulness. That's what a lot of people do. It's not my fault I had a bad mom. It's not my fault. It's the society that we live in. I'm just a victim. And so you can't judge me based upon my behaviors because it's, it's not really my fault. It was just a trigger or trauma response. I can treat people however I want. People will see suffering as an excuse to, for their sin. Or some people will say that suffering is an opportunity for their sanctification. Suffering is an opportunity for you to share like Christ, to become more like Jesus, to teach you to become more like Jesus. See, listen, here's the reality. Trials are nothing more than an opportunity to increase your trust. The trials that we go through, they are not from God to beat you up. No, they're there to build you up. God's not trying to harm you. He is trying to help you. And God isn't punishing you. No, here's what trials do. Trials prepare you for greater things. Trials are an opportunity to increase your trust. And so Christians, if you want to really prepare yourself for what is to come, you must learn how to embrace suffering as a gift. So that way you become more like Christ. Here's how I wanna close because many people struggle with this. I wanna give you five ways that you are to embrace your suffering. Number one, you can embrace your suffering because it reorders your motives. You really learn what's important in life and your greatest of trials. And all those things that you were worried about and you spent your money and time on, they don't really seem that important because trials reorder your motives. Number two, it strengthens our church because you have a burden and you're called by God to bear that burden because you're carrying a heavy load and then your small group is able to pick that up and lighten the load that you're carrying. And when we're all going through trials together, guess what? There's not a lot of time for us to be fighting against one another because we're gonna be so busy loving one another. Trials eliminate division and they bring about a supernatural unity in the church. Number three is it, it purifies our hearts. Like gold that is pressed through the fire, all the impurities begin to rise to the top. And God is able to remove those things so you can be purified in your life and in your heart. Trials reveal your own sin, your own areas where you don't believe in God, you don't trust the gospel is good, where you don't trust the goodness of God. Trials purify your heart. Number, number four, trials give you a reason to rejoice. We don't rejoice because of our sufferings. We rejoice despite our sufferings. Trials give you a reason to practice what you preach and to put to action what you believe. And then lastly, number five, what, what they do is it gives meaning to our suffering. Trials give, give meaning to our suffering. Look how he closes here. He says this, he says, therefore let those who suffer do so according to God's will and entrust their souls to a faithful creator while still doing good. Trials give you an opportunity to trust in God. Listen, my friends, I don't know what comes next. 
I don't know what the next 20 years is gonna look like. They told us it was two weeks to flatten the curve and it lasted two years. We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know what the future holds. Maybe I'm just being overdramatic. Maybe I'm not. If we didn't think we'd be here five years ago, where do you think we'll be in 20 years? Maybe I'm just trying to prepare you or maybe this message is prophetic. I don't know what the future holds, but here's what I do know. I know the one who holds the future. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know the one who holds the future. And redemption, I have read the end of this book and I know that in the end, we win. Last week, Ashley and I, we were in, in Rome. Where was first Peter written? He was in, in the Roman Empire. We were in, in Greece at that time was the Roman Empire. And what, what was Caesar doing? He was persecuting Christians. He was arresting them and he was throwing them into prison. And we stood in a Colosseum where 2000 years ago, believers just like you in a church They would come, kick down the door, take them away, bring them to the Colosseum and feed them to lions and be murdered by gladiators for entertainment and sport. And me and the other AG world missionaries and other church planters that were with us, we stood at the top of this Colosseum that would seat 15,000 people. And we sang worship songs to our King Jesus. Friends, Rome has fallen. The church is still here. Caesar is dead. Long live King Jesus. The Colosseum is a tourist attraction I paid $10 to see. But the church of Jesus Christ is the biggest thing this world has ever known. They tried to kill us, but they can't stop our king. This is what Jesus does. And so whatever you have seen on YouTube, whatever TikTok you have watched, whatever a politician says, or whatever your college professor has told you, Christianity ain't dying. We're just getting stronger. God is moving. God is growing. Revival is coming. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Caesar is dead. Long live King Jesus. Rome has fallen. Long live King Jesus. Long live King Jesus. I don't know what the future holds, but I've stood in a coliseum and I've worshiped my king. Where is your hope at? What are you placing your beliefs and faith in? In 20 years, will you be as steadfast as you are today?